You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Alyssa Hurst. The 11.9 million documents caught up in the Pandora Papers scandal have revealed much about government officials, offshore accounts, and shady dealings. Among the trove of information, though, was new info about Douglas Latchford, a notorious figure in the art world who was indicted in 2019 for trafficking looted Cambodian antiquities. Through these Pandora Papers investigations, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists found that at least 27 pieces with Latchford ties remain on display in prominent museums, including six in the Denver Art Museum. The conversation about looted art and antiquities is not a new one, though. Elizabeth Campbell, director of the University of Denver Center for Art Collection Ethics, joins us to talk about ethical stewardship, repatriation of stolen art, and the impact of returning these pieces to their rightful owners. So just as a a matter of setting a foundation of definitions here, can you start by telling us what provenance research is and why it's important work? Yes, provenance research is the study of a history of an object. And so it's a way of writing a kind of biography of an object. And so the most important things are showing the ownership history. And so uh, a good provenance narrative will show when an object was acquired by somebody, when it was sold, uh, ideally the location of the sale as well as the date. It's very important for this provenance research to be done on objects that are either currently in museums or being acquired by museums, either by a purchase or a donation to make sure that there isn't a gap in the ownership history and to verify that there isn't an illicit past, um, that there isn't a a moment where that object has been stolen or looted, um, sold under duress. All of those things are really important to make sure that the museums are ethical stewards of the objects that they hold. Very interesting. So getting to the Pandora Papers more specifically um, and the conversation surrounding Douglas Latchford. So he's been accused in the past of trafficking looted antiquities, primarily from Cambodia and Thailand. I'm curious what constitutes ownership and if finders keepers applies here. Uh, No, it really doesn't. (laughs) So uh, and a lot of his deals were in New York. And the law is very clear that the holder of a stolen item um, does not have clear title to that item. So um, the the problem with Latchford is that he knowingly was trading in stolen and and looted antiquities from Cambodia. Uh, So he had some willing collaborators as well. Um, There's a a gallery owner, Nancy Wiener in uh, New York, who uh, just a few weeks ago uh, pled guilty to charges of conspiracy and falsifying records um, and has paid over a million dollars in fines and forfeitures. And her statement was absolutely striking. She was one of Latchford's key collaborators and said it was a conspiracy of the willing to traffic in these antiquities. And, you know, the... Pandora Papers revealed 27 items that had uh, ended up in museums around the world. Um, And so museums ended up, you know, with some of these objects that had been trafficked. And this was during a time when there were already, there were some questions raised about Latchford. um, And it's, it's actually been a topic of some controversy for several years. So this 
this really isn't new in the art world. It's become very well known in a broader public, but it has this issue related to Latchford has been quite well known um, since around 2012, when some journalists really started to investigate his dealing. So how do these looted artifacts make their way from, say, an ancient temple in Cambodia to the Metropolitan Museum of Art? And are there these established channels through which this type of trafficking takes place? Yeah, so Latchford, as um, uh, a British citizen was, he um, passed away recently, but he operated out of Bangkok. And so he was working with criminal gangs in Cambodia. Uh, so there was a, a good deal of um, uh, cultural heritage that was looted during the period of the Khmer Rouge in the mid to late 1970s. And then Cambodia went through this really tragic period of upheaval um, even after the Khmer Rouge was out of power. So 1970s, 1980s, uh, there were criminal gangs that were looting Cambodia's cultural heritage. And so Latchford, who was um, an expert in this area, um, was working with these known vandals. <laughs> and he actually was well known. He published books uh, on, on the topic. And so was um, considered by many to be an expert on Cambodian heritage. And he claimed that he was protecting these items as Cambodian heritage. Uh, but what he was also doing was working with criminals who were plundering these items. He also falsified records. Um, and so a dealer like Latchford then could then transfer those works to a dealer like uh, Nancy Weiner in New York. And from Nancy Weiner, who is the, the woman who said it was a conspiracy of the willing and she has pled guilty to these fraud charges, then that dealer can then sell them to a museum. Uh, and so that, that's how they can work their way either into private collections or museum collections. And if, if the museum is not doing careful provenance research and not looking at those records carefully, uh, then they can wind up with stolen items. And then it becomes a big problem like now where museums are facing um, this scrutiny for not having done the research at the time that the items were acquired. Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely come back around to that because I'd love to talk more about a museum's responsibility. Um, but before we get there, I'm I'm really curious why antiquities and art are often cut up in these kinds of deals. Is it because there are high sums of money to be had? Is this something that attracts these hyper wealthy individuals? What is it about art that makes it a target for this kind of trafficking? Yes, yeah, so these works of art can be very valuable, and antiquities in particular um, are the the target of traffickers because they are they can be very difficult to trace. So if you imagine a painting, for instance, so a lot of the pieces that I study that are um, works that are plundered uh, during the Nazi era, if you think about the back of a painting frame, it can have custom stamps, dealer stamps. There's a lot of evidence that's actually on the back of the frame. And so it's really fascinating to, to look at these pictures and turn them around and you get a good sense of that object's biography from evidence that's on the frame. You can't do that with an antiquity. Uh, and so it, it makes it difficult to trace. It makes it um, difficult for customs officials to be able to tell 
whether an item has reached a country through illicit means or not. Um, it makes them susceptible to, to forgery uh, as well. And they're items that can increase in value also. And so that's why they, um, they're of great interest to criminal enterprises. They are trafficked along with weapons and drugs. So you know, those three areas are, are really important for traffickers because they can increase in value and they're so coveted uh, that then you know, that, that makes them uh, the subject of trafficking. Yeah, why are these items so coveted? Well, if you're thinking about, say, these items from the Khmer Empire, so this is dating back to the 9th to the 15th century, and there is a very limited supply. I mean, this is, this, these are items of, of cultural heritage uh, from Cambodia, and so um, they are precious based on that limited availability. Um, they can be quite sought after, um, whether it's by individual collectors or museums. So for example, uh, if you think about a museum that wants to display all of human artistic production from all time periods, all areas of the world, they're looking to fill gaps in collections. And they say, okay, we don't have a lot of um, uh, East Asian art from this time period will fill a gap. We don't have much to show in terms of Cambodian heritage. That can make it very desirable. It, it makes it appealing for museums to acquire these pieces of heritage uh, to be able to display them to their public. Um, the problem is that in decades past that institutions have not done the proper provenance research, uh, whereas today there's just ethics have really developed in a different way. Uh, with acquisitions. So you've kind of alluded to the fact that this is not an isolated event. Can you tell me a little bit more about how common this is in the art world right now? Yes, actually, antiquities trafficking has been thriving recently. And one way that they've been doing, uh, they've been, uh, been able to uh, carry out these activities is by using Facebook. So social media has actually enabled traffickers to uh, actually post photographs. <laughs> it's been quite stunning. They will post on Facebook pictures of illegal excavations. Um, and so this has been um, a, an effort by some nonprofit groups to really crack down and to get Facebook to uh, remove posts by uh, criminal enterprises and these vandals that are selling items uh, through Facebook. So um, sadly, yeah, it, it really has been, been thriving and social media has been able to facilitate these operations. Um, at the same time, there has been uh, then on the, the other side, an activist movement uh, through Facebook, Twitter, that is now monitoring uh, to a greater extent uh, outlets like Facebook to, to try to help crack down on, on those activities. Yeah, that's fascinating. I did not even think about the role social media can play in this, but I mean, social media has facilitated so many other things. Why not? Why not this? Um, so that's really, really fascinating. So 
the Denver Art Museum, for example, I think it's six pieces that they have that, that were tied to Latchford in some way, shape, or form. Um, so once a museum or a private collection learns that a piece of art in their possession has been acquired in this sort of unethical way, what are the steps necessary for repatriation? And how long does that process usually take? Um, is it as simple as just shipping a piece back to the country of origin? No, it can be a very long, drawn-out process. Uh, and so the what the museums should be doing is carrying out the proper provenance research. If they didn't before, uh, at the time of acquisition, they need to go back and do it at that time. Uh, and one problem is that many museums are short-staffed when it comes to provenance researchers. And you can imagine there are many different areas where this research needs to happen. It should be happening with items that may have been plundered during the Nazi era. They should be carrying out research on Native American items. There's actually federal law uh, that mandates uh, the uh, research and transparency when it comes to Native American items. And so many museums have not invested enough in provenance research. And so they are often short-staffed. They very seldom have a full-time provenance researcher. So it's often contract and part-time work. Uh, and so getting the research done can take some time. In addition, then, uh, these negotiations often involve the US State Department. So it's, it can even go beyond the museum so that it really becomes a diplomatic effort. And so then, of course, that makes it even more complicated. If you're getting governments involved for an official repatriation, so then it, it, it starts to get out of the hands of, of, of a single private museum, since we have a mostly private museum system in the US, but then can be operating through diplomatic channels. And so they, you're talking about governments also getting involved. So that can delay the process as well. So it, it can um, take, a good deal of time for, for this process to happen. Yeah, so digging into that a little bit more from the museum perspective, what does the situation look like? Is it something that they want to do? Is, is this important to museums to right these wrongs or, or is it really just um, reacting to, to when these things hit the news cycle? Yeah, I think it, it's common that views are changing in the museum world and there is a recognition that this kind of work has to be done. And you know, there are all sorts of codes of ethics. There's the American Alliance of Museums, um, which is, issues accreditation to, to museums. There's an association of art museum directors that has a code of ethics. Most museums have their own sets of codes of ethics. And so if you, if you go through them, you'll see that provenance research and transparency making the findings public are all part of those codes of ethics. There can be wide variation in how, how well those guidelines are followed. <laughs> um, and so official statements will express a commitment to provenance research and transparency. But unfortunately, there just aren't enforcement mechanisms. And again, with our private system of museums in the United States, we don't have a ministry of culture. Um, so it is difficult for those guidelines really to be enforced. The people that I speak to in the museum world, I, I, I am speaking with people who do have a commitment to carrying out this research. I think, again, I mean, a lot of the problem is that the research is not fully supported 
um, in many institutions. And so it makes it very difficult for this work to get done. But I, I do think there has been a big shift in the last 20 years um, toward acknowledging the, the need for this research and transparency. Um, and I, I do think it's worth noting that the Denver Art Museum uh, repatriated a statue to Cambodia in 2016. Um, so they, they had started to do this research and make this effort, but clearly um, there was more work to do. Yeah, certainly. And, and you've spoken to the fact that this is not something that every museum, you know, they don't all have a team of people doing provenance research on each of their pieces. So what, what would it take to get to a point where museums were able to have that that kind of thing within their own offices? Is this an issue of funding? Is this an issue of want? What What is stopping us from being able to have uh, a team of provenance researchers with every museum? Yes, funding is really crucial. I would love to see campaigns that are dedicated to trying to raise money to support provenance research. This is an area that donors could support. Um, so uh, museums are often doing uh, various uh, fundraising campaigns to uh, support acquisitions. Uh, there needs to be um, a much greater role for uh, fundraising to support provenance research. And so you know, it's, it's an area that uh, donors could support um, you know, in, in order to help a museum really serve its public mission because these so museums do hold works in the public trust um, you know, and they are, are shielded from tax obligations uh, because of this role that they play. So they do have a responsibility to hold those works in the public trust uh, in an ethical way. So you're coming to us from The Hague today, and you were recently in Paris speaking on behest of the French government about your work regarding art that was looted from Jewish families by Nazis. So can you tell us more about this work and, and what it means to have the French government invested in your work? Yes, I was delighted to be invited to give a talk in Paris. I spoke about a topic that I wrote about in my first book. It's called uh, Defending National Treasures, and it's about France during the German occupation of World War II and how they were trying to protect their art and heritage. And actually, I was talking about French policy and an effort by the French Museum Administration to try to acquire works from Jewish collections. And so it's an area that still is quite controversial um, because it's not about the Germans looting works of art, it's about the French doing it. Um, and it's regarding some collections, like for example, from the Rothschild family, huge dynasty had enormous art collections and French authorities were able to seize items from those collections. And so I was talking about um, an effort that was made by the French government to take some of those items and put them in the Louvre and other museums. This is still controversial because it involves people who also supported the resistance. And so it really complicates this sort of black and white narrative that has been common about collaboration with the Germans and resistance, because these were uh, people, um, and in this effort, they were all men, um, men who supported the resistance, but when they had an opportunity to put masterpieces from a private Jewish collection, like Rembrandt's, uh, you know, works from the, the Dutch masters, um, 
in French museums, they took, they tried to take that opportunity. Um, and so I was really happy that the French, uh, that representatives from the French government invited me to talk about this. Um, and I caused a stir, like we had a good debate because uh, there were some folks there who um, don't agree with my approach. And I was happy to be able to explain, this is what I found in the documents. And you can go to, you know, others can go to the documents themselves and see the record um, because it's also what happened after the war when works of art were not claimed and some were held by the French government. That's the topic of my next book um, that should be coming out next year. You've kind of talked about a couple of communities who have experienced this taking of their art. Um, can, you, can you tell me a little bit more about what other communities have been historically affected by this practice and whose art remains on display in major museums today? Yeah, so... It, this issue affects so many communities. I think it's really important for us to acknowledge ways that uh, Native American and indigenous heritage um, has been uh, plundered um, by various communities. So I referred to a, a federal law um, earlier in our discussion um, that regulates how museums should be handling Native American items. So this is uh, a law from 1990 that's known by its acronym NAGPRA, and it especially deals with uh, sacred uh, items and uh, and human remains. Um, it was quite common for anthropology uh, departments, uh, either in museums or universities, to acquire human remains. Um, and so that federal law says that institutions need to be doing research, creating inventories, making this information public and uh, facilitating consultation by tribes. Uh, so you know, that's another area that we've treated in the Center for Art Collection Ethics and just with our role in the, the Rocky Mountain West and needing to uh, face our past and also with the need for the University of Denver also to, uh, to face uh, it's passed with ties to the um, to John Evans and his role as territorial governor during the Sand Creek Massacre. Uh, we have felt it, it's very important to uh, grapple with this area of ethical stewardship as well. Um, and then there, there are so many other areas as well. So, you know, Black Lives Matter has also uh, revived attention on African items. And so this is an area that's getting a lot of attention. And um, there has also been some really important scholarship that has come out in, in recent years about uh, African items. So uh, that's another area that is getting some close scrutiny. And uh, is, um, it's one that we also hope to address in, in upcoming events in the offered by the Center for, for Art Collection Ethics. So there are, there's, there are a lot of areas. <laughs> That's why this, you know, this work is, um, is so needed and, uh, and re requires such a large investment because there are so many different areas that really require thorough, careful research and transparency. You've talked about how this is not a new conversation. The Pandora, com the Pandora Papers did not start this conversation from scratch. It's been happening. Um, so why do you think there is greater interest in this right now? And how do you see museums grappling with this over the next five or 10 years? I do think there's something really interesting going on. Um, the more that uh, 
our world is globalized and digitized and the more involved we are in social media, it seems that we are increasingly uh, attached to objects and tangible items from our past, you know, whether this be on a, a family level, individual, community, tribe, nation, that these objects have a tangible connection to our past and that there is um, an activism that has really been gaining momentum uh, from various communities. And, you know, we saw this mobilization among Native American communities, you know, around the, the time of, of NAGPRA in 1990, um, and then with uh, descendants of uh, victims of the Holocaust later in the 1990s. Um, and then on uh, a national level, um, governments of Italy and Greece have been campaigning to get items back. Um, for example, there's a very famous case with the, the Greek government trying to get um, a set of sculptures from the, the British Museum. Um, so on a national governmental level, there's been that kind of effort for, for repatriation. Um, and so it, it seems that it, has become all the more important for individuals, communities, nations, tribes to have these connections and to take control of them and to, to have them um, as you know, part of their, their own identity. So that it's, it's not, um, for example, museums who are controlling one's heritage and that it gets restored to the, either to the, the community, the family, the individual somehow. And so we see this growing activism in a variety of, of areas and uh, a willingness for people to challenge institutions and to demand that, uh, that they get belated justice. It really is a form of social justice um, to get items back that have been um, wrongfully taken from, um, from prior owners, whether it's on the individual or a communal level. Yeah, and I, I listened to the conversation you had with CPR on the Pandora Papers as well, and I know one of the things that you all talked about was the role museums can play in in ethically displaying this art, if indeed the originator is okay with the museum keeping it. Yes, yeah, so I think that a, a, a useful example, maybe sometimes with uh, indigenous and uh, Native American items. So there can be cases where um, a, a tribe will say that a museum really is um, the, a place where an item can be properly conserved. And so, uh, for example, the uh, museum, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science um, has been um, very responsible in uh, abiding by uh, that NAGPRA law that I mentioned and in maintaining good relationships with tribes. And if you go to their storage facilities, there are many items that will never be on display, that should never be on display. They're not meant to be there. Um, you know, so for some communities, um, these items, I mean, shouldn't even be thought of as objects. They are ancestors, <laughs> they have spirits, and, and so they are sacred and should not be viewed by individuals. And so sometimes tribes will acknowledge that the museum can be a proper uh, place for those items to be preserved. And um, often 
museums will work out arrangements with tribes so that they can visit the institution and see the, uh, sometimes they're called uh, belongings and they are allowed to carry out uh, sacred rituals. So there can be that kind of understanding with a tribe, but it, that is accomplished through consultation, long discussions. There has to be, you know, in-person contact, which of course COVID, you know, the whole pandemic has really delayed, um, but it requires a lot of really careful discussion and really respectful conversation um, with those communities to have that relationship of trust um, so that the, the museum can continue to be a place where those items are, are properly conserved and with respect um, toward the, the community. Yeah, digging into that a little bit more, for the communities that are regaining these lost artifacts or the individuals who have their property restored to their families, what can the impact of that look like? Yeah, I like to give the example of uh, a claimant who lives in Denver, and this is related to my, my area of um, Nazi-era art and restitution. So uh, I was teaching an adult education class through University College on Nazi art looting, and I had one student come up to me at the end of class toward the beginning of the course, and she said, you know, I, I won't be able to be here next week because I'm going to be in Germany receiving items from a German museum. <laughs> and so I said, uh, excused absence, of course, but please tell me more about this. So, you know, for example, there is this uh, family and uh, this student of mine who is also a friend, Nina McGahee, has received items from German museums and her relatives um, who lost works of art uh, didn't have masterpieces. This was more of an antique shop and so they're more items of daily use, like pictures and you know, items that you, you wouldn't even see in most uh, museums and they are not high value items. But for the family to get these items back means a tremendous amount because they, they were uh, victims of anti-Semitic persecution. And when one's ancestors have gone through loss, plunder, loss of life and, you know, and um, were victims of the Holocaust, uh, to have traces of that past and a tangible connection to the family can be extremely powerful. And it, in, the, in those cases, this is absolutely not about any kind of monetary value. It's all about reestablishing a connection to the family. And so that gives it a, a special meaning um, you know, beyond monetary value. To learn more about DU Center for Art Collection Ethics and Elizabeth's work with Nazi-era art, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Melissa Hurst, today's host and executive producer. This is Radio Ed. Radio Ed.